I have been speaking to you about some of the themes that were shared at our annual uh, council meeting. We call it council, um, but it's our national meeting for the Christian Missionary Alliance. It was held most recently in Columbus, Ohio. And uh, our uh, president, John Stumbo, uh, has been sharing some themes that are significant to his heart. And this past um, month or so ago in Columbus, uh, he reiterated and deepened those very same themes. But I want to read you some excerpts that he shared in 2015 at the previous national meeting. Uh, excerpts that he deepened and demonstrated this time by having uh, various speakers from other countries and uh, various uh, national leaders from other uh, countries come and share uh, the love of God and the message of God. And And this is what he said on Wednesday, May 27th of 2015. He said, there are reasons why we should take the command to love seriously. And I want to talk about loving people this morning. And I I want to share those thoughts that he had because they underscore for us the absolute necessity of making love our primary attribute. First of all, it is a biblical command, he says. Then, any church that is not a loving church is a church where Jesus is not Lord. Think about that. Any church that is not a loving church is a church where Jesus is not Lord. (coughs) Perhaps we have mistaken being friendly for being loving. Can you see what is meant by that? It's easy to greet someone to say, hi, how are you? Glad to see you. I'm so glad you uh, are with us today. Or to greet one of those that you know well. Hi, good to see you again. And never think about them the rest of the week. Never uh, inquire as to uh, how they're doing in their life. Never uh, pray for them. Never take an interest in the things that are happening in their lives. It's easy to mistake friendliness for love. Thirdly, a church that is not loving is a church that will have no impact on the community and may actually do harm. If we're out there as professional Christians uh, touting our do's and don'ts, we're going to actually turn people away from the gospel. We're going to cause them to want nothing to do with church. We're actually going to do harm instead of benefit. Only a loving church has the power to influence the next generation. You know, sometimes we underestimate the power that love has, but it has tremendous power. Every single person wants to be loved. 
Some have covered over that very well. Some have built walls of insulation. And I'm not just talking about uh, psychobabble in our culture, but I'm talking about uh, people in other nations that are part of terrorist groups, that are, that are part of, quote, the enemy. They still have in their heart of hearts, deep down in their lives, a desire for someone to care about them. No matter how well they've covered that up in their behavior. As animosity increases against the church, our only valid response is being loving. We must love our enemies. What did Jesus say? Love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. Bless those who despitefully use you. Because if you only love the people that love you, you're no different than anybody else. That's not supernatural love. That's not godly love. That's just normal human behavior. If you like people that like you, so what? But to be able to love those that oppose us, to love those that undermine us, to love those that use us, to love those that threaten our freedoms. That is a challenge that only God can meet. And the thing that makes the church supernatural in its capacity for love is the fact that we have in Christ the capacity to love the unlovely. And as animosity increases, John Stumbo says, as animosity toward the church increases, the only valid response is love. Are you seeing animosity toward the church increase in our culture? I certainly am. Uh, everywhere I turn, I see more and more resistance growing uh, in the church. I was uh, talking with someone recently who knows where I stand and, and, and is very dear to me. <laughs> and I don't know if he realized what he was saying, but uh, we were talking about creation and whatever. And he says, no rational person believes in, in the Genesis account. And I said, excuse me? Did you just call me irrational? Well, we had to backpedal a little bit, but uh, that was the instant thought. No rational person believes this. And I'm thinking, we have really bought a bill of goods. We have been sold so much uh, in the name of science that we are buying into things as believers. But the world itself is ridiculing us. That's just one example. Uh, the, the whole um, LGBTQ community, I'm going to get to that in a moment, but there's great animosity toward the church because we are not pluralist. We're not open-minded. We're not loving. We're narrow and, and we're judgmental. And as a consequence of that, uh, there is tremendous opposition toward anything 
that is Christian. I was talking with someone the other day, I forget who it is, so if you're here, oh, forgive me. I, sometimes I forget things. But I was having a conversation, and the question was raised, could we even have a crusade anymore? Like the Billy Graham crusades of before. Could we use a public venue to have a crusade? How many protesters would there be? How, now I remember. <laughs> how, how many people would oppose that? How many, how many people would resist that kind of public proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ in a public venue for a stadium or a, a, a conference center or whatever um, that existed solely to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. We, we are living in a time of great animosity toward the church. And the only way that we're going to overcome that, and, and I'm... I say that with a, a certain amount of um, hesitancy because I'm not sure we're going to really overcome it. But the only way we're going to win individuals out of that is if we have a loving response. We cannot get our backs arched and go at it two-fisted like we're going to fight it. Now, that doesn't mean we yield legitimate ground. And really, uh, now that I'm into this, I realize there's a whole, there's a whole series here. <laughs> because we do have laws that are still in the books. So far, there's still a Bill of Rights. It's been contested lately, but it's still there. And as Americans, we have the privilege to demand our rights within the Constitution. And when I say that, I remind you of the Apostle Paul, who when he was being persecuted and falsely arrested as a Roman citizen, this is what he said, I am a Roman citizen. I appeal to Caesar. In other words, he was saying, I am standing by the Constitution as a citizen, and I want my day in court. And that's all right. But that does not mean that he did not have compassion and love for those who opposed him. He said, God is my witness. I would go to hell myself if it would win one of them to faith in Jesus Christ. His love was so great that he was willing to trade his salvation for their salvation, if it were possible. But nonetheless, when he was pressed to the wall, he said, I exercise my right as a citizen of Rome and I appeal to Caesar. So there is a place for us to stand firmly as citizens of this country on the basis of the Constitution. Nonetheless... We must do so with gentleness, with firmness, with kindness, and with compassion. If we get in people's face and, and curse right back at them and shake our fist at them and do the same kinds of things they're doing, that's only going to deepen the rift. We have to demonstrate love. A young R.R. R. Brown was talking to an aging A.B. Simpson. 
in the early days of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. And this young man at that time, and he became a great evangelist and uh, a great uh, teacher and preacher, R.R. Brown did. He went to Dr. Simpson one day, and he wanted to learn something from this great pioneer of mission and evangelism. And he said, Dr. Simpson, how can I be a great soul winner? How can I be a great evangelist? And this is what Simpson said. To be a great soul winner, a person must be a great soul lover. And I want to say to you this morning that people know whether you love them or not. They can tell that. There's something instinctive that is communicated non-verbally to whether you're just hoping to get another member or win the argument or whatever it is you're trying to do versus whether you love them no matter what decision they make. May I remind you that when a young man came to Jesus and said, What must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus laid out the terms that cut to the chase of this young man's problem, which was covetousness. He said, Go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. You need to divest yourself of your idol. He didn't say that to everyone. You know, I, I was in the home of Art DeMoss many, many years ago, multi, multi-millionaire. We were talking the other day about grand pianos, and I reminded me of Art's living room. It had the black and white marble tile and two full grands, one on either side of the room, and they did not dwarf the room. And uh, tennis courts and a kitchen that could prepare for 700 because he often had dinners at his residence and hosted executives from all over the country. Art used his money to glorify Jesus Christ. And he used his home to reach executives and, and CEOs of major corporations that would be put off by you and me. They're not going to come to 2010 Kennedy. But they would go see Art, and he would give them dinner, and he would always share the gospel. And a, a number of them came to faith. But to this young man, for whom money was his God, he said, you need to divest yourself of your idol. Get rid of it, and come follow me. And the young man the scripture says, walked away sorrowfully because he was very wealthy. And did you know that Jesus let him go? He didn't run after him and say, okay, well, look, I got another plan. Let me, let me see if we can't compromise here. There is no other plan. Jesus let him walk away, but he didn't love him any less. He loved him when he showed up, and he loved him when he walked away. And love is the motivation of our evangelism. If we don't love people, 
they will know it. They will sense it. It will be that nonverbal whatever that goes on that says this person doesn't really care about me. And friends, the only way we're going to win the unlovely is if we love them with a supernatural love. I'm currently debating whether I'm going to make this two messages or one. (laughs) It may be two. In Romans chapter 1, which kind of defines where we are right now. In Romans chapter 1, you know what, before I go there, it's going to be two, because I've got to to deal with some things that, um, that I think are important. To be loving people does not mean to be doormats. To be loving people does not mean a compromise of conviction. To be loving people does not mean that we throw our lives away at people who threaten us because they are haters and not lovers. We need to be able to, in the Spirit, make a clean definition and understanding. And and in Romans 1, uh, Paul talks about the gradual decline of of humanity into the morass of sinful behavior. I happened to see a news clip the other night, and and honestly, it kind of nauseated me. Um, I think we're all mature enough to handle this. But it was about the gay pride in the Chicago area. And the antics that some of them do out in public, on the public streets, and in the, in the news cameras. You know, as one guy assumed the pose similar to a center ready to snap the ball, and another guy comes up behind him and acts out a lewd act. And it really kind of, my, my revulsion inside was automatic and s- sort of a gag reflex. And then I thought, these two guys, in their lewd, brass, open ungodliness, are going to hell. I'm not afraid to say that and let it be broadcast. They are going to hell because the Scripture says they are. Not because I said they are, but because the Scripture says they are. And what they are doing is sinful, exceedingly sinful. But they're people. They're human beings. 
And when the scripture says, so loved God the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, he meant those two guys. He loves them. He loves them. He wants them to come to know him. He wants to change their lives. He wants to give them peace. He wants to rescue them from the risk and danger that they're in. He loves them. And we have to love them. If we don't, we are not reflecting the love of God, which is clear. And what do I mean by loving them? Now, they may not want it, those two may not want anything to do with me. I know gays and lesbians who you can have a conversation with, and they're sensitive and open, and, and they're willing to talk to you, and that's fine. And I will always treat them with great respect and dignity, because they're human beings. And the thing that we need to get a grip on is... What is done by them in secret, as Paul explains in Romans 1, is practiced by those who love the Lord, who, who claim to love God, who are Jews by commitment and conviction. Now, are they doing exactly the same thing? Maybe not. But you know what's interesting in that long list of decline after you get past uh, uh, idol worship and animal worship and you get past idolatry and, and you get past um, homosexuality and, and lesbian behavior and you get past, you know what's in the list? Gossiping. Gossiping is beneath in the decline of sinful behavior. It's beneath these other acts. Because it is murder by assassination of character. If we have loose lips and talk about other people. Even if it's true. We destroy their character. Why would we want to be the bearer of news that brings someone else down? And so Paul makes his point. He says... The law is an unbroken, seamless whole. It doesn't matter if you break thou shalt not steal, or thou shalt not commit adultery, or thou shalt not lie, or whatever. It doesn't matter which one you choose. You have broken the law. If I had a yardstick up here, and we wrote the laws down every three inches or so, or whatever... And I broke it at one end or in the middle or toward the beginning. I've broken the yardstick. I've broken the law. And the judgment is the same. So we have to recognize that just because someone has a different kind of sin than we do in terms of their proclivity toward uh, foul deeds... It does not make them any worse. We're all in the same camp. 
I was going to end this morning with the story of the woman taken in adultery. It's a very fascinating passage. It's in John 8. Um, and I want to go there for a moment because it, it reflects Jesus' response. He is on the Mount of Olives, and then he came down to the temple, and all the people were coming to, the, to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman called an adultery. And having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been called an adultery in the very act. I have always wondered how they did that. You know, you don't often catch people in the very act. I, I wonder if she wasn't set up because she had a reputation and they were not beyond paying some other guy to solicit her services in order that they could trap her and test Jesus. I mean, that's the evil heart of these people. She's been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so they might have grounds of accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. In other words, he sort of ignored them. I've always wondered, too, what he wrote. Maybe he started writing a list of sins. I don't, I don't know, but... Yeah. Oh, yeah. There you go. Thanks, Jim. Good point. What did God write with his finger on the mountain with Moses, the Ten Commandments? I, Jesus wrote something that was profound, and, and so they persisted in asking him, What do you say? I mean, they were ready. They had rocks. They were ready to, to kill this woman. In obedience to the law of stoning. And Jesus straightened up and said, Well, I guess you got me. So let's do it this way. Whichever one of you has committed no sin, you throw the first stone. Uh-oh. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground and just let the Holy Spirit deal with their conscience. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. Why do you suppose the older ones left first? More sin. More sin. You know what I'd like to add to that? Because I'm in that camp now. I'm an older one. <laughs> and I'm getting older by the day. Doing some cleaning up yesterday that involved bending and stooping and twisting and turning and lifting, and I felt really old. But you know what I've come to see as I've gotten older? I've come to see myself more clearly, but I've also come to see the human condition more clearly. Folks, we're a mess. We are really a mess. 
And apart from Jesus, we have nothing to commend us. And the older I've become, the more I've become aware of that. I thought I was non-judgmental and loving 40 years ago. I'm far more mellow and gracious now. Because I've faced myself. And the Holy Spirit has dealt with the process of making me like Jesus. By exposing how I'm not like Him. And offering to transform me. And the older I've gotten, the more I realize... I don't look very much like Jesus, but I want to. And the older I get, the more I realize we need a Redeemer. We need a Redeemer. And so when those older ones left and he was left alone with the woman in the center of the court, straightening up, and she's still lying in a heap at his feet, She says to her, he says to her, woman, where are they? (laughs) Did no one condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Can you imagine how those words must have washed over her? I don't condemn you. You are clean. You're free. I reckon you this moment washed of all your past. From now on, go and sin no more. Now, unless you get panicky at that word, it's a verb, not a noun. When sin is used as a noun, it means any lack of conformity to God's absolute perfection. Sin. Everything that God is not. But when it's used as a verb, it means don't do what you know is wrong. And God will give you the power to do that. You may learn tomorrow there's another wrong thing you didn't know about. But until you know it, don't do what you know is wrong. And she knew this was wrong. You see, Jesus did not compromise his conviction. He did not wink at her problem. He did not pretend it wasn't a problem. He did not ignore her sin. He addressed it. He said to those who had set her up, and he knew that, you've committed no sin, you throw the rocks. And they couldn't do it. But then he said to her, I don't condemn you today. I'm cleansing you today. You're washed. But stop this behavior. Don't sin anymore. And we need to Learn how to love people without getting in the camp with them, without condoning the behavior. 
We need to be able to say to someone, I love you. I care about you. I'll do anything for you, but I will not accept your actions. And that's not rejecting you. That's rejecting your behavior. If you take it a different way, okay, I can't help that. But I will love you. And I will pray for you. And I will long for you to know Jesus. And you may not say that in the first conversation. You have to cultivate relationships with people. They need to, you, they can't figure out you love them in one five-minute encounter. You've got to spend time. But we need to come to that place where recognizing that we are sinners, we are willing to love other sinners into the kingdom. And we need to do so without condoning their behavior. There are so many other things that that I could share, and and I I wish I had time. you know, uh, I, I think about what we're dealing with today with terrorist activity and things like that. And I think about the politics of our country and how sad that is. And I think about all those kinds of things. There's so much to say. I can love someone. And if necessary, stop them in their tracks from bringing terror upon others whom I love. Does that make sense? I wouldn't necessarily hate them. But I wouldn't put up with behavior that put others at risk if I could prevent it. You know? You may be called on to be a martyr. I think about those students not long ago who faced a gunman. And his question was, are you a Christian? Do you profess to follow Jesus? And everyone that said yes was killed. It would have been good if someone had been in the room that could have stopped him. It would have been good. Not because we hate him, but because he's behaving in a way that's destroying the lives of others. And God does have a a law. And it says, you shall do no murder. End of story. So there's all kinds of things that we could talk about that go in so many directions of a biblical ethic. But we must always be motivated by love. And if we're not, we're going to do more harm than good. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes, that you would make us sensitive to your Holy Spirit, that you would teach us how to love from the heart thieves and liars, Sexually immoral immoral people, adulterers and and idolaters and gossipers and 
haters of parents and insolent and self-centered and because we were in that camp. Maybe not with the same things, but with different things equally offensive to your heart. And you have saved us. You have opened our eyes. You have redeemed us. We love you. And you love others who have yet to know you. Teach us how to love. Teach us how to care. And teach us to do so with firmness and without compromise and with conviction while ascribing to every person dignity and compassion and genuine, sincere, loving care. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.